Okay, Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know that the Scripture says in the passage, what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice or his choice of grace. But it is. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever or continually. Okay? Um, so last week, as I said, we looked at the first couple verses. Uh, what kind of things do you remember from our discussion last week? So we were talking about in the uh, aspects of ethnic Israel versus spiritual Israel, and what Paul is talking about ethnic Israel at this point is being part of a remnant because he describes how he's part of a tribe of Benjamin. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, how's this thing work? Oh, there you go. Pretty high-tech stuff here. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so we were talking about ethnic Israel as opposed to this remnant, okay? And uh, we, we kind of re- recalled a little bit some of the things we talked about earlier in chapter 9 when he, when he talks about uh, Israel and he talks about ethnic Israel and he talks about true Israel or spiritual Israel or righteous Israel and we might just for the sake of trying to keep things in mind let's let's draw that diagram again that we had back when we did chapter early part of chapter nine and and we talked about how uh, God had given this promise uh, to Abraham and uh, but he says, Paul says there in the beginning of chapter nine, early part of chapter nine, he says that not everybody who is uh, a descendant, not every, not not everybody who is a descendant of Abraham is is Israel, or not uh, all Israel are descendants of Abraham. And and so we, as we went through those early verses of chapter nine, we discovered that this circle that includes the people of God, it begins with the descendants of Abraham, but then it gets narrowed down to what? Okay, so God, through a promise that he makes to Sarah, he narrows this circle down and he says, well, it's not all the descendants of Abraham. It's just those who come through 
Sarah. Okay, and then there's a subsequent promise that narrows the circle even further. And what is that promise? Pardon? Okay, the promise to Isaac and Rebecca. Okay, that there are going to be uh, that that it's going to be through Isaac. Okay. And, uh, and and through Isaac's descendants, okay, and then that gets narrowed down to whom? To Jacob, okay. So we keep getting this this circle reduced as to who are the people of God. But what Paul has said, we talked about all this back in early chapter nine. What Paul has said is that there's actually this little circle down inside, okay, and this little circle down inside is what we might call true Israel or spiritual Israel. Okay. Or uh, I like to call it righteous Israel uh, because that's kind of how Paul Paul identifies it. So that's this inner circle. Okay. And each one of these circles as we go down is defined by what? A promise, okay? So, what's the promise that defines that inner circle? The promise of Jesus. Okay, the promise of the gospel, okay? It's the gospel that defines this. And as each, as each promise is given and each promise is believed, then that circle is defined. So he gets down. So, so Paul talks throughout Romans chapter nine. He talks about ethnic Israel, which includes all the descendants of Abraham at times, or, or at times all the descendants, primarily all the descendants of Jacob. Okay. So he talks about ethnic Israel like he does at the very first of Romans chapter nine, where he talks about how Israel has all these promises and blessings and stuff. And he's talking about ethnic Israel. But then when he gets to verse six, he starts talking about this, this little circle, this true Israel. Okay, and and in the verses that we're going to look at today, still having trouble operating this high tech pen here. Uh, So but in in the verses we're going to look at today, what what term does he have for these this this group in Israel? What's his term? The remnant. Okay, so we'll get to that today. Okay, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit. Okay, now, uh, so as we begin in the verses that we looked at, uh, in verse one that we looked at last week, once again he's talking about this larger group. He's talking about ethnic Israel. Okay, he's talking about the descendants of Jacob. Okay, and he talks about how he's part of ethnic Israel. But then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about this idea of the remnant. And what we have to remember is that each one of these circles of definition, whereby he defines who the actual children of Israel are, it's always defined by a promise and a promise believed. And so when we get down to the remnant, we will understand, we'll come to understand it's based upon a promise given and a promise believed. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Uh, what else did we talk about last week? Okay, and and a lot that we said about foreknowledge last week, we had talked about when we were back in Romans chapter eight. So a lot of that was review. But what are some of the things that we talked about about foreknowledge? First of all, why were we talking about foreknowledge? 
Okay, Paul mentions it. In fact, before we get to that, let me back up and review a couple other things. What is the question that Paul addresses at the beginning of chapter 11? Has God rejected the Jews? This is really kind of the question he's wrestling with all the way through these three chapters, right? He starts very clear back in chapter chapter 9 and and the question arises, has God's word for is concerning Israel failed? Okay, so it's this whole the whole question about what's the deal with Israel? Okay, that's the question he's wrestling with here. And and so at the beginning here in chapter 11, he asked the question, has God rejected Israel? Because we've we've seen that they have stumbled over the stumbling stone and 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 they haven't embraced the gospel. And Paul's talked about that. and He's talked about how God is now working with the Gentiles more so than he is with the Jews. And so the question comes up again, has God rejected Israel? And that's the question. And and. What I suggested to you last week is that Paul offers first. First, what is his categorical answer to the question? Has God rejected Israel? Absolutely not, he says. Absolutely not. And then in the following verses, he gives us three reasons why we know that God has not rejected Israel. Okay, and we talked about two of them last week. I'm coming back to this question of foreknowledge in a minute, but. We talked about two of the reasons last week, but there were three reasons. You remember what the three reasons are? What's the first one? Because not everyone that they are thinking has been rejected was true Israel. Okay, that is true, and he's going to make that point, but what's... What is the reason he knows they? What's the first reason he gives why he knows they are not rejected? He says because he was a Jew. Okay, so there's this personal reason. Okay, we talked about his personal reason, and commentators view that in different ways. Some think he's just simply saying, uh, "This is just, I'm a Jew. <laughs> I am one of them, and it's just unthinkable to me." I love the Jews, and it's unthinkable to me that God would have rejected us. Okay, so. Uh, that's one possible meaning. Another possible meaning is is that Paul is saying, "Well, look, I'm you know I'm going to talk about the remnant here in a minute. He hasn't really brought it up yet. He's going to talk about it in a minute. He had talked about it earlier briefly, but he's, and he's going to bring it up in a minute. But but it's possible that what he's saying is, well, God saved me. <laughs> obviously, I'm part of this remnant that I'm going to talk about. So obviously, God hasn't rejected us because I'm saved. Okay, and uh, and of course there were a number of other Jewish. Uh, believers as well, so it's po- that's possible. Another uh, possible explanation for what Paul's saying. Another is that Paul is simply saying, uh, "Listen, I am a Jew, and I have been given this ministry of reconciliation to the Gentiles, and so uh, so if God is working to win the Gentiles through me, a Jew, obviously God has not abandoned or rejected the Jews." So there's three possible reasons there or meanings. Uh, to Paul's reason there, why God hasn't rejected the Jews. As I said last week, I tend to lean towards the uh, towards a couple of them. I haven't really settled on one or the other, but I tend to lean towards the idea that Paul is just sitting saying, this is just unthinkable to me. As a Jew, it's unthinkable to me that God would have abandoned us or rejected us. And then the second being, uh, look at me, I'm saved. <laughs> God has had mercy on me. God has shown his grace to me. Uh, so 
uh, obviously God has not written all the Jews off. So, but whatever, those are some things to think about. So those were the three reasons. And we talked about some about the person, the first reason, the personal reason a little bit last week. And then the second reason that he gave. And, and, I, and I categorized them this way. I said he had a personal reason, a theological reason, and a historical reason. Okay? And we talked about the personal reason and the theological reason last week. And today we'll get to the historical reason. So the theological reason that he gives, the personal reason he gives is, look, I'm a Jew. I'm a, I'm a descendant of Abraham. And I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And so he gives his personal reason. And then he gives his theological reason when he says, God has not rejected his people whom he what? Foreknew, okay, and that brings up the subject of foreknowledge that Sarah was mentioning. So, what are some of the things that we thought about and talked about about this subject of foreknowledge last week? There's a couple of different possibilities for interpreting the word for foreknowledge. Okay. That it simply refers to knowing beforehand. Okay. Um, And some people think that that's what it talked about last week was how do you determine in a language, in any language, how do you determine what a word means? Okay, or by its context or by its usage, right, okay. And uh, the problem we run into with the word foreknowledge, there's actually several problems we run into, but the problem we run into is that oftentimes people uh, try to define the word by its entomology rather than by its usage. Okay, and 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 what we find out when we study the word foreknowledge, its usage in scripture as well as its usage in Greek literature, uh, secular Greek literature, non-biblical Greek literature, is that it almost always. And when I say almost always, uh, there are a few exceptions, as Sarah mentions, where. Uh, where some people believe it has another meaning. But in all other cases, except those few cases in Scripture, a few verses in Scripture where it's assigned a different meaning, in every other case, it seems quite clear that it simply means the idea of prescience, the idea of to know before. Okay? It has no connotation in, in its normal usage in Greek. It has no connotation of of relationship. It has no connotation of love. It has no connotation of choice. It just simply has the connotation of prescience. Okay. And, uh, and so, uh, but as Sarah mentioned, there are some, uh, there are many actually, uh, many Christians who uh, hold that when foreknowledge is used in reference to God, it takes on one of these other meanings. Okay. And, uh, and the point that I made last week is, is that if we're going to do that, if when the word foreknowledge refers to God, it takes on another meaning, we have to have some strong argument from the context 
that requires us to do that. Okay? Not that it's simply an option, but what we're doing when we take this alternate definition for the word foreknowledge, what we're doing is we're really we're taking the exception rather than the rule. And if we're going to take the exception, we have to have some strong argument or some strong reason to do so. And what I uh, tried to demonstrate last week is that is that in those places where the word foreknowledge is used in reference to God, the normal definition fits. The normal definition works. There's no imperative to find some other meaning other than simply God's knowing beforehand. Okay. Now, of course, what else did we... When, when we think about God knowing beforehand, that's kind of a that's kind of a misnomer, if I can use that word. Why is that true? He's outside of time. Yeah, God's outside. There is no such thing to God as a before or after, because time is a creation of His. He is independent of time, and so I use the term. Jim's used it just now. I use the term. He's outside of time. You know, which probably in itself is not a very accurate way to talk about God, but it's the handiest way I know because I'm in time, and it's very hard for me to talk about God being independent of time. So, but he's independent. So God just knows. He just knows because there's no before or after. There's no today, tomorrow, or whatever for God. When we talk about God's foreknowledge, we're talking from a human perspective. We're talking about what God knew before I experienced it. Okay, so I have an experience and I go, okay, there was a knowledge about what this would happen before this happened to me. Okay, and that was God's knowledge, God's foreknowledge. Okay, that he knew. Okay, what other things did we talk about about foreknowledge? Okay. It, it kind of encompasses everything. God knows um, not just the eventuality, but the potentiality and the alternate reality. Yes. So, uh, we're not blindsided by anything. Exactly. Exactly. And how does that idea that God is not blindsided by anything, given his foreknowledge, how does that pertain to what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 11, verse 2? Well, if he had been blindsided, it could be understandable that he would reject his people. Exactly. If he's not blindsided, there is no excuse or reason for him to reject them. Exactly, exactly. So when God, way back there in Genesis, gave his promises to Abraham concerning his descendants, concerning ethnic Israel, when God gave his promises to, to Isaac and to Rebekah and to Jacob and to David and all the way through there, as he gives those promises, he did so with full knowledge of Israel's stubborn disobedience. So, so when God made his promises, he made his promises with the understanding that Israel would turn against him, that Israel would disobey him, that Israel uh, would be recalcitrant and unfaithful to him and go a-whoring after other gods. He knew that and he still made the promise. Thus, 
Paul can say in Romans chapter 11, verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. He knew all this and He made those promises anyway. What's the significance of that for you and I? That's huge. God's not going to be surprised by my failure. Exactly. He accepted me anyway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when God saved you and He made all those fantastic promises to you about all those things He was going to do, and then and you so you and you got saved because you believed those promises, and then down the road somewhere you just utterly miserably failed God. Now I know that probably hasn't happened to most of you, but it sure happened to me. Okay, and it happens quite regularly, actually, to be honest with it, with you. But none of that blindsides God. And the promises He made to me when I was saved and the promises He made to you when you were saved, He made with full knowledge of how you would fail Him. And so we know that God is not going to reject you because of His foreknowledge. Because He knew all that and made these promises anyway. Now that's grace, isn't it? Okay, Which is, of course, what He gets to in the verses that follow. Okay, well... Uh, enough for review or we won't even get on to today's lesson. So let's move on. Uh, so, so then Paul begins to address the third reason. The first reason was his personal reason. The second reason was what we might call his theological reason. God knew all this stuff. And the third reason then is this historical precedent we have in the story of Elisha. So he tells about this encounter of God, of Elisha with God, over the subject of Israel. He talks about <clears throat> Elisha's complaint to God. Now, if you remember the story, the story is back in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, and we won't take time to read it today for, uh, because of the brevity of time. But uh, you'll remember the story about how Elisha, or Elijah, excuse me, had this this encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Remember that story and the, and the thing with the idol and the prophets of Baal prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and tried to bring down fire on their idol and, they, you know, and, and, and then, and then Elisha, Elijah has them build a, uh, an altar and, 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 uh, and they put the sacrifice on it and they pour water all over it and they do everything. And he just prays once and God consumes the, you know. And so the people that are all standing around watching go, Wow, Yahweh is God. Okay, and so Elisha say, Elijah, excuse me, says, "Take all these 450 prophets of Baal, take them down here by the creek, and kill them." So that's what they did. Okay. Well, the problem was the king and queen weren't really big on this idea. Okay. So when the word gets to Jezebel, uh, the queen of Israel, and we're talking here about Israel. We're talking about the northern kingdom of the divided kingdom of Israel. So this is the ten tribes, which call Israel, the southern, the southern uh, kingdom we call Judah. But this is the tri- this is the king, northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and and uh, and 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 Jezebel, who's the queen, she she's pretty upset about this because she's a Baal worshiper, and so she threatens Elijah, Elijah and he, she says, "You're going to be like all these prophets that you killed yesterday. You're going to be like them by tomorrow." Okay. And so what does Elijah do? He hightails it, doesn't he? He heads south, okay? He gets out of Israel and he goes down first to Beersheba and then eventually he goes all the way to Horeb, which is what? What's Horeb? 
Mount Sinai, okay? He goes all the way to Mount Sinai and he holds up in a cave there and there's a whole story about the whole thing in the cave and the wind and this earthquake and the fire and all this. But eventually, God come, actually God comes to him twice and asks him, why are you here? Okay? And twice, Elijah responds with this response that Paul quotes here. And Paul doesn't quote it exactly the way Elijah said it, but basically, he says... Uh, he says, uh, regarding Elijah's prayer in verse 3, he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone have left and they are seeking my life. And that is, in fact, the situation from Elijah's perspective. From Elijah's perspective, Israel and God are divorced. From, is, from Elijah's perspective, there's no more, there's no more faithfulness to God in Israel. They've just completely abandoned God. And so apparently God has abandoned them. And so when God comes to Elijah and says, why are you here in this cave instead of up there in Israel prophesying as you're supposed to be doing, Elijah is essentially saying, what's the use? It's all over. There's no more faithfulness for to you in Israel. And then Paul kind of gives us the brief summary of God's response here. The essence that had to do with this question of the remnant. That's the only part Paul quotes. But what God actually said to Elijah was he said, uh, Elijah, I want you to get out of this cave and I want you to go back to Israel. Because we're not done yet. And I want you to go back. First, I want you to go through Damascus, through Syria. And I want you to appoint Hazael as the king of Aram. And then I want you to go back to Israel, or to, yeah, to Israel, the northern kingdom, and I want you to appoint Jehu, the king of Israel. Anoint. I want you to anoint Hazael, I want you to anoint Jehu, and then I want you to go find Elisha, and I want you to anoint him, a prophet, to succeed you. And then he says, the people who escape from the sword of Hazael will fall by Jehu's sword. And the people who escape from Jehu's sword will fall by Elisha's sword. And then he says, but I will keep, future tense, I will keep 7,000 men alive who have not bowed the knee to Baal and whose lips have not kissed his face. And so God's, what God is telling Elijah to do is to go back to Israel to anoint these different people, two kings and a prophet, and, and he describes this winnowing of Israel where many are going to be killed by Hezael, the king of Aram, and the ones that are left there are going to be killed by Jehu, the king of Israel, and the ones that are left by him are going to be killed by Elijah, Elisha, the prophet of God, the successor to Elijah. Except, God says... There are some in Israel who have not bowed the knee. Now, Elijah thought there wasn't anybody like that. But God says, no, there are. There are 7,000 who have not, in the past, yet, up till now, bowed the knee to Baal. And based on that fact, he says, I'm going to keep them alive in the future as this winnowing process goes on. Now, that's 
the passage to which Paul is referring here. And as Paul quotes it, he says, well, Elijah makes this prayer to God and he prays and he says, God, they've killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars and, and, uh, and I alone am left and they're seeking my life. That's why I got out of there and that's why I'm hiding in this cave. Okay. And God comes to, uh, speaks then to Elijah and he tells him all this stuff that I've told you. But the part that's pertinent to Paul's point here in Romans chapter 11 Paul quotes in uh, verse 4. He says, but what is the divine response? Of course, the word but there sets the divine response in contrast to Elijah's prayer. And Elijah's prayer says there's nobody left. It's all over. From the human perspective, it's finished with Israel. But not so from the divine perspective. God answers, he says, but what is the divine response in verse 4? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so, Paul refers to this response of God to Elijah and changes it a little bit. Because Elijah, when, he, when, when God speaks to Elijah in Kings, it, God says, they have not bowed the knee and I will keep them alive. Past tense, future tense. But when Paul quotes it, it's all what? Past tense. Okay. So Paul quotes it all past tense. Now there's a reason why he does that. Okay. But what it's important for us to understand that when God to Elijah in 1 Kings, when God speaks to Elijah... He speaks about something he will do in the future based upon something that has happened in the past. And what is that thing that's happened in the past? They haven't bowed the knee. They've been faithful to God. Okay. And based on the fact that they have not been faithful to God, that they have been faithful to God and have not bowed the knee to Baal, based on that, in the future, God will keep them alive. Okay. Now, Paul says, he says, God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 alive who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Then Paul makes the application that helps us understand why Paul is so confident that God has not rejected Israel. And the application comes in verse 5 when he says, In the same way then, there has, there has also come to be at the present time past tense. Okay? So Paul says, now, in the present time, where we're sitting here in the first century, there has already come to be this group of people, this remnant who, if you will, have not bowed the knee to Baal. Okay. So there is within Israel, and of course, now remember, he's talking about Israel here. So he's not speaking generally of all believers here. He's speaking here of this little circle in Israel, this little group of true Israel or righteous Israel or, or spiritual Israel, this remnant that he's going to call them. So he says there's this, there's this remnant that has come to be at the present time. Okay? And, and I think the reason that Paul changes the quote from, from future tense, I will keep them alive, the past tense is because from Paul's perspective, 
the remnant that he's talking about, it has already happened. There is already now, in Paul's day, a remnant. Okay. Now, how did that remnant come to be? By grace. Okay. He says, he says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to the choice of grace. Or as it's translated in my translation here, God's gracious choice. Okay. So there has been a choice made. A choice made on the basis of grace that has preserved within Israel this remnant. Okay. So what Paul is simply saying here is, listen, you look at Israel, and maybe from a human perspective, it looks like as a nation they're totally rejected God, and so God has walked off from them. And it really looks like that. I mean, we are talking here in the mid-60s A.D. What's about to happen? The destruction of Israel, the war of the Jews, okay? Ultimately, it culminates in 70 AD with the destruction, the sacking of Jerusalem. But the Romans come in in the mid-60s, I forget, I think 68 or whatever. They come in and they, and they begin to conquer Israel. It culminates, of course, in the destruction of Jerusalem and ultimately the whole Masada story. Uh, uh, so, all of this is just on the verge of happening. It really is beginning to look like you know, we're beginning to already hear by the mid-60s, we're already beginning to hear the echoes of war. We're already beginning to hear the echoes of Israel's destruction. Christians were by now leaving Jerusalem and fleeing into other parts of Israel to escape what appeared to be about to happen. So as Paul is speaking and he's writing here, he's recognizing our days as a nation appear to be limited. From a human perspective, it appears to be over. But from the divine perspective, there is a remnant that God has preserved. And that remnant, that little seed down here, is evidence that God has not written off ethnic Israel. He has not written it off. And this seed then becomes the basis upon which all future events with Israel are predicated. They're based upon the fact that God has kept the seed. He's kept this remnant. And, he's, and this remnant has come to exist because God has made a choice based on grace. That's Paul's argument, right? And so he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You know, it's interesting to me how many people Today, believe that you're saved by grace, but you've got to somehow make some kind of contribution. You've got to do some good works. You know, you've, you know, somehow baptism is thrown in there, or, or, or the Eucharist, the communion is thrown in there, or good works, or something is thrown in there that, that we contribute to grace and are saved. But Paul says, no, these are two different categories, folks. There's grace over here and there's works over here. And as soon as you mix works with grace, what happens to grace? 
It's no longer grace. Okay, it's no longer grace. Okay, so he's saying, he's saying, he says it was it was by grace, in order that it might not be by works. It's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So, so this remnant has come to exist strictly by God's grace. And there is this remnant in Israel, and there is even today in the 21st century, there's a remnant of, of within ethnic Israel, excuse me, there is this remnant of Jewish believers, of people who are the remnant by the gracious choice of God. And then he says, I'm going to come back to this in a moment here, but he says, what then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. So we have this little group chosen by grace. And they have obtained what Israel is seeking for. But Israel as a whole has not obtained it. They have not obtained that righteousness of God that he told us earlier in Romans comes on the basis of faith, grace through faith, right? So, so all of Israel wants to be God's people and they want to be in God's favor and they want God's blessing, but they've missed out. They've stumbled, as he said in chapter 9, over the stumbling stone, Right? And so they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. They've rejected, the, they've rejected Christ. And so there's this larger group of Israel. And he says concerning them, they've been hardened. But the chosen ones, the ones who were chosen on the basis of grace, they have obtained this righteousness of God. Imputed righteousness. Okay. Well, quite simply, I think that's what the passage teaches. But the problem is that oftentimes we read this passage, people read this passage, and they read things into the passage more so than what the passage teaches. And sometimes as I'm teaching, I, I find it necessary, and I always feel bad for doing this, and I don't know why I do, but I always feel bad. When I'm teaching a passage, I have to, go, I have to stop and say, okay, this is what the passage does not teach. Oh, why do I need to do that? Okay, and I and I was thinking about that yesterday. I was thinking, okay, why why do I need to teach? Why do I need to talk about what this passage doesn't teach? Let's just talk about what it does teach, okay, and leave it at that. And the Holy Spirit says to me, you know, I don't want to sound like I was you know, on cloud nine with Apostle John or something. But anyway, the Lord just reminded me, what's Paul doing? What is Paul doing? He's telling us what he's not told us, right? He keeps, he's been doing that all the way through Romans. All the way through Romans, he makes an assertion and he goes, now this does not mean this because people are reading into his words things he did not intend. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay. So it's okay if once in a while we stop and say, this is not what the Bible teaches. <laughs> this is not what this passage teaches. Okay. 
So if you'll bear with me here for a minute, I'm going to take a few moments here and follow Paul's example and talk to you about what Paul is not saying. Okay? Because that's what he's doing. He's telling you what he's not saying. Okay? And so I'm going to take a few moments and tell you what he's not saying. And what Paul does oftentimes when he's telling you what he's not saying is he goes back and he says, do you not remember what Scripture says? So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what I think this passage does not say. And I'm going to say, do you not remember what Scripture says? And we're going to look at some other scriptures. Okay. Remember last week you talked about the difference between exegesis and... Eisegesis. Yes, yes. Exegesis. Exegesis. Yeah. Well, I had, an, I had an encounter one time about 40 years ago. I, uh, I was living... My wife and I had just been married a year or two years. It was in our second year of marriage. And we lived for uh, about... Uh, eight months or so, we lived in a little apartment here in Norman, uh, over uh, close to the uh, to the football shrine over there, just a few blocks from the uh, from the temple of you know temple of football over there. <laughs> no, not attended. Okay, just a little fun there. But anyway, we lived we lived over there near campus uh, in this little in, a, in this apartment complex, and our apartment faced on this alley. And right down the alley, there was a there was a single guy who lived in a. Uh, a little uh, a little house apartment down the alleyway there, and this particular guy was uh, was uh, uh, I think he was a Christian. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I had some questions at times, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he was a Christian, but he was he was very very dogmatic in his theology, and he was very evangelistic in his particular theology, and so he ended up really being really quite divisive within the body of Christ here in Norman, and. Uh, and I had an opportunity one time to go down and talk to him in his apartment. And, uh, and we got talking about this idea of grace. And what does it mean that God saves people on the basis of grace? And we got talking about faith and what is faith and where does faith fit into this whole grace thing. And and I remember he drew an illustration for me, a little diagram for me, uh, to make his point. I've never forgotten his little diagram. But what strikes me, the reason I'm telling you this story is because this, three days ago, I was reading a leading commentary on the book of Romans in which the commentator makes this same argument. Okay, And, and, uh, and I encountered this argument, like I say, for the first time about 40 years ago. And when I first encountered it, although I knew there was something wrong with this argument, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. Okay. And the guy simply said to me, he said, uh, he said, faith, faith is something we do, right? And I said, yeah, faith is something we do. And uh, he said, well, if faith is something we do, then faith is a work, right? Okay. Hence, faith is a work. Therefore, we cannot be saved by faith. We've got to be saved by grace. Huh? 
You know, you look at that and that looks like, hmm, makes sense to me. Faith is something we do. What we do is a work. Well, you know, I, I didn't have an answer for him at the time. What should I have told him? Where does faith come from? It's a question I would ask. Okay. Uh, pardon? Okay. More than that, how do I prove that faith is not a word? My question is whether it's something you do. Well, it's clearly something you. It clear, faith is clearly faith is clearly something we do because over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture we are commanded to do it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, etc., etc. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we, this is something we are commanded to do and held responsible for if we do not do it. Right? But how do I know faith is not a work? Come on, folks. You know this answer. I mean, faith is in your, your heart and mind. It's not physical. Faith is what's given to you by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 8. But the if there is not a reference to faith, it's a reference to salvation. Come on, folks, you know this. Romans chapter 3. Paul's already argued this for us. What did he tell us? Let's go back to Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> Uh, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. Okay, now we've got more to read here, but just notice one thing here. Paul is defining categories. We have a law of what? Works. Works. And we have a law of faith. Those are two distinct categories. They do not mingle. They are distinct. Okay? Where is boasting? It is excluded. How is, ex how is it excluded? Not by this principle of works over here, but by this principle of faith. Okay? Then he says in verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified, how? By faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only, etc., etc. Okay. Uh, down in verse 4, uh, chapter 4. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David, etc., etc., etc. So Paul makes two distinct categories. And one is the category of works and the other is the category of faith and never the twain shall meet. And so when Paul is talking about works, all the way through Romans, and oftentimes it's in association with the law. Okay, Whenever he's talking about works, he's talking about meritorious deeds that we do. 
whether they're attitudes or outward actions. They're meritorious deeds that we do. But faith is different. Faith does not fit into the category of works. I wish I'd known these verses when this guy talked to me 40 years ago. I hope he does now. But faith is something we do. Yes, it's something we do. But it is not a meritorious work. Where does faith get its merit? He told us in these verses we just read. Where does it get its merit? It is credited. It's credited. God credits our faith as righteousness. Faith is not righteous by itself. When you believe God, you've not done a righteous act. You have done something which He attributes or credits as righteous. And so, as I said this week, as I'm reading the various commentaries I'm reading in preparation for today's lesson, I encounter this idea again. And it's very, a leading commentator on the book of Romans says, well, when Paul says here that grace... That, that this remnant was chosen by grace and that grace is apart uh, from works. He said, he then goes on and he says, now works is anything a human does. And I saw where he was going as soon as he said that. I go, oh, I've heard this before. I heard this 40 years ago in my alley. <laughs> faith, is, faith is something a person does. And works is something a person does. Hence, faith is works. So his conclusion was, faith is a result of grace, not the cause of grace. Not the reason for grace. Not the basis for grace. Not the instrument for grace. It is the result of grace, he says. And as much as I appreciate this gentleman and I appreciate his commentary and I get all kinds of benefit from it, I have to say, well, I'm sorry. I'm going to take exception with you on that one. And the reason I'm going to take exception with you is because Paul, while he draws a categorical difference between works and works and faith and works and grace, he puts grace and faith together. So that he says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you say through faith and not none of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, the it there is a reference to salvation. Salvation is a gift of God. It's not of yourselves. But it comes through the instrumentality of faith. He says in verse 24 of Romans 3, he says we are justified as a gift by his grace through faith. He says in verse 28 of Romans 3, he says the man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, the one who does not work but believes. So, when Paul says that this remnant exists by the grace of God, he has not in the text said anything about faith. But it has to be implied. Because over and over and over again, Paul has stated that salvation comes by grace through faith. And so the implication is that this remnant is the remnant by grace through faith. 
And indeed, as Paul then goes on, he talks about these people who are hardened and we don't have time to spend uh, a lot of time on that. So we'll touch on that next week as we go on. But very clear in the context of the Old Testament, that remnant, those, that 7,000 that God kept alive, it was not an arbitrary choice of God. He just didn't go, okay, I'm going to keep 7,000 alive. That's not, what it, that's not what the story tells us. The story tells us he kept 7,000 alive because what? They had not bowed the knee to Baal. They'd remained faithful to God. And for that reason, he kept them alive. By the same token, when he says the rest he hardened, in every case in the Old Testament where God hardens a people, he hardens them in response to their sin. It's not an arbitrary choice that God just somewhere back in eternity past made these decrees and, and, and he just decided, OK, I'm going to create some people and these people I'm going to create and save and these people I'm going to create and damn to hell for my glory. And to demonstrate my justice. Nowhere is God's hardening portrayed that way. Everywhere God's hardening is portrayed where we know the circumstances of the hardening. Everywhere it's portrayed in the Old Testament. It is in response to people's previous disobedience to God, including Pharaoh. And similarly, every time God shows grace, it's in response to faith. That's why I asked the question, where does the faith come from? Where does the faith come from? Because that, I believe, comes from God too. So, which changes kind of what you just said. No, it doesn't. And, and I'll concede that. I'll, con- I'll concede that for the point of the argument. I'll concede that faith comes from God, although you would be hard put to find a scripture to demonstrate that. Uh, but I'll concede that because all, all our abilities come from God. Exactly. Everything comes from God. And my argument would be that because God holds all people responsible to believe, He has given all people the ability to believe. Because that's why you set out. Yeah. You have to have the faith first to set out to go for salvation. Yeah. And it must be given to all men to have some faith to seek God. Yeah. And then the goal well, is yeah. faster. I don't agree yeah. with that point either. That's another whole area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what I, wanted to, what I wanted to do today is to just simply explain what the passage does say and then make it clear what it does not say. Okay. And what it says is that God has chosen this remnant on the basis of grace. And it exists to this day. What it does not say is that that, that, cho- that choice was in any way arbitrary or that it was not in response to people's faith. Okay. All right, that's it for today, and we'll pick it up next week.